Cultivated Marketer, Episode 9, Grant Gooding. We're going to be talking emotional data and fear with Grant Gooding, CEO of Proof Positioning. Welcome to Cultivated Marketer, where we talk marketing professional development so your garden of opportunity grows. This is Brent Bowen. And I'm Matt Tidwell. And Matt, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good, Brent. How are you? We're past the holidays, right? We are past the holidays and the frenetic season that's the, that's the holidays, although a little different. Maybe not as many families or members of the family around the house. Yeah, I think kind of maybe the word scaled back from what I was seeing in my social feed uh, was probably the best term from just about everybody. I think that's that's a good thing in, in light of where we still are with, with pandemic, at least over the holiday season. You and I are recording this a little bit later, and, and so it seems like we, we get some pieces of good news once in a while, which is sort of nice. Haven't had that, so that's that's positive. Yeah, that scaled back was definitely the case. I'm finally over my finger injury of online shopping and sending many tubs of Topsy's popcorn all across the country to family members I couldn't see. Yeah, you know, and I, I guess I'm remiss. I, I normally I normally try to keep up with the marketing news, right, around how online shopping went and, and things like that. And so obviously it'd be fascinating to compare this year to to previous years to see how all of our retailers did out there on the online space. You certainly intuitively, you would think that it was a better year or a good year for them, but it'd be, be interesting to dig in, into that. We need to find a guest who can t- talk about that at some point. That is, <laughs> certainly. That sounds, that sounds like a great, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that it was a banner year for online sales during the holiday season, but I think, and I haven't followed up on this portion of it, What I think the concern was because of the nature of the shopping and most of it happened online, there was some concern that there would be a significant number of increased returns. So some Hmm. of that might, might get clawed back a little bit just because, you know, people weren't able to try things on if they weren't comfortable to go in a store, that, that kind of thing. But that is not the consumer CPG space is not my area of expertise. So it, it might not be a bad idea to have a guest on to talk about that as we continue on with the pandemic. For sure. For sure. So, well, happy, happy new year as well. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And we're kicking off our new year with a guest we spoke with before the holidays that uh, the holidays can be an emotional time of the year. And we've got, a guest that specializes in to kick off the new year in emotional data, Grant Gooding. Yeah, you know, I'm really excited to have listeners get to know Grant a little bit better. He's a guy who's been around for a long time. He's 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 done a great job of building his personal brand. Uh, you know, we talk about building your personal brand, and he is real true as you'll see in the episode. I think the guy's brilliant around around market research, but puts a little bit different spin on it. Developed this this tool that he calls emotional data. And, and uses emotional data and market research. And don't want to steal his thunder because we're just wetting appetite here. But it's a different way of looking at market research. And, and my gosh, when you talk about our business, it starts with the big R word. And Grant is a guy that has spent his career looking at it in a slightly different way. And so I think it'll be really interesting for listeners. 
Yeah, I think one of the big surprises is we talked to him. So we talked to him about emotional data and the idea of maybe him taking an alternative point of view in market research, as you mentioned, really focusing on how to quantify that emotional component and how he started his company. And then the other thing we talk about and spend a great deal of time kind of digging into it is last year, he actually did a webinar on an emotion, which it is a controversial one, but one that was pretty rampant in the year 2020 with the, with the pandemic. And then even in light of things related to recent news events, we're one week removed from essentially the, the riots at the Capitol, right? So we're one week, week removed. We're, we're talking about this essentially the day that we've had the second impeachment of president Trump is that Grant talked we talked a great deal about fear with grant and both the barriers that fear present as well as the enabler of of fear and it, and when i mean enabler what i mean by that is he he basically articulates that fear is probably the strongest emotion and one that does the best job potentially in selling although i don't necessarily i haven't necessarily thought about it being a salient emotion now I, I mentioned you and you you and i were talking before we got started i have some colleagues in germany that i work on with a project and we've even had some discussion there where they have no they have no inhibitions or fewer inhibitions about using fear where there might be more inhibitions about using fear for the use of sales but he he articulates their subtlety there too so the concept of even fomo I mean, FOMO is the fear of missing out. It can be lighter. Yeah. Yeah. Lighter. Absolutely. Lighter. And, you know, just I've heard people refer to it as FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, doubt, you know, and the, the triad there that that plays into in, into human behavior and in, in all ways, but certainly maybe from a marketing perspective. And then I know the other thing, I was just reviewing my notes here, is that fear from the perspective of being a barrier to folks as they move forward in their career. You know, you know, turning as we as we like to do here on the show, turning it back to to kind of career development and how you have to be. You know, you use fear. I think can absolutely be a, a motivator for one in one's career, and you want it to be motivating and not limiting. And so, we spent some time talking with him about that as well, as a guy that's owned his own agency and hires people and and things like that. And and so it was again, that's always something I'm I'm fascinated by is to see people overcome their their fears their uncertainties and and use it more as a motivator to improve themselves in their career so we, we spent some time on that one as well and i think it, that ended up being a, a nice part of the conversation yeah and this is probably the appropriate time as you're talking about that aspect of the conversation we had about fear is for our listeners to we had such a great time and really hit on some depth with a in a number of topics with grant that this will actually be a two-part episode. So episode nine is basically part one of our conversation with Grant. We start to touch on the, the notion of professional development and hiring and aspects at the tail end of episode nine. But in episode 10, we really get deep with, with Grant around what he looks for in individuals, you know, when he's looking to hire and then also how he works out within the community. So folks, You'll want to definitely make sure if you, you listen to this episode, you'll definitely want to make sure you come back for episode 10 to hear our follow-up or continued conversation with Grant Gooding. And with that, 
I think Matt and I, Matt, do you, anything else you want to add about our, our chat? I don't think so. Let's get to it. All right. We're going to leave you guys with the expert, get you over to Grant Gooding and hear our chat with him regarding emotional data and a deep conversation about fear. Welcome to Cultivated Marketer, where we talk marketing professional development so your garden of opportunity grows. This is Brent Bowen. And I'm Matt Tidwell. And our guest tonight is the founder and CEO of Proof Positioning, a market research firm based in the Kansas City area. He's a reformed M&A guy, gleaned a lot of experience from that, but he also has an MBA in qualitative marketing from the Block School of Business at UMKC and has worked with nationally recognized market researchers. It was out of those experiences he developed a quantitative method to assess brand preferences using principles of neuroscience. I'm loving this because we're going to tap into my old sci-fi days here on the neuroscience that can accurately quantify emotional resonance or put simply human emotion. We're excited to chat with him about emotional data and his career journey. Grant Gooding, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Are you sure you, I mean, just li- if I was a third party listening to that introduction, I'd be like, I'm not sure I want to listen to this nerdy crap. <laughs> we have all sorts of geeks that like to listen. Geeks are in, man. Did you, <laughs> did you see the revised 21 Jump Street? It's, huh. not, it's not the jocks and football players that are ruling the day. It's the, it's the nerds. Well, that's a fact in real life, I think. Yeah, I think when pop culture picks it up, you know, you know, it's a fact. So (laughs) anyway, I don't know. Matt and I at least want to hear this. We don't know if our listeners will want to hear us. We'll we'll hear this. We'll let them be the arbiters of that. But I know Matt and I want to talk to you about this. So let's lead off with that emotional data. Help us understand that a little bit. Unpack it. Tell us a little bit about the emotional data process. And a lot of people are familiar with maybe traditional marketing research. How does this differ from traditional marketing research? Well, it's a little bit of a wonky path, to be quite frank. When I was working in M&A, we we had to deal with lots of different types of research, right? So I was an analyst and I'm looking at what you're supposed to look at that business, which is I'm looking at the numbers. I'm looking at all the quant I can get my hands on. I'm looking at market opportunity employee count, customer turnover, you know, all that stuff. Well, so all that quant is big data, essentially, right? That's how it operates in most organizations. It's essentially who, what, when, where, and how. And one of the the, the dirty, dark secrets in that business is, is the failure rates. So if you are a manufacturing distribution company X, and you decide that you want to grow through acquisition and buy manufacturing distribution company Y, and you find a good fit and everything feels good, there's actually only a 30% chance that the entity that you bought is going to be solvent inside three years. And that level of wealth and job destruction is unthinkable, but it's really hard to kind of figure out some of these soft variables that are associated with this. So, so you have to ask yourself, okay, so say I'm, I'm the, I'm the owner or the, the CEO of, of company X and I'm looking at Y, it's not like I don't know anything about manufacturing distribution. I've probably identified some strategic advantages, you know, I can take advantage of, maybe I have different lines I can sell to their customers and vice versa. And you look at the deal and like, man, this looks really great. Well, so the things that we don't know 
when we're looking at that at analysis like that is we don't know one very, very important thing. And that is, why is anybody doing business with either one of these organizations? And when you don't know that, you really don't know anything. It's just, you just have a palette of numbers. So I, I tried to ask questions and figure those things out. And there's not a whole lot of emphasis put on those things. There's leadership and key man analyses. And, and there's, there's some customer interviews that maybe someone that a seller might let you participate in. But for the most part, you're, you're kind of flying blind. So, so typically, the reason these failures happen is you come in and, and, and as, new, as new owner X, and now you own both entities or operating both, you make it an efficiency change. So it could be simple as simple as, well, both of these organizations have a customer call center. Why, why do we need two? So you analyze call volume and these other things and you find out, well, we'll just create one call center. We'll take the best people from both and voila, not only do we have a really good call center now, but we've dropped some money to the bottom line, right? Because we've we've been able to probably eliminate some positions and create some efficiencies. So, hey, we've got a better customer service department for the whole company and we saved money. I mean, we're high-fiving each other in the hallway. But here's what we don't know. We don't really, we'll functionally understand like how the call system works, what software they're using. We don't understand the customer experience. We don't know, we don't know if we fight, you know, that maybe there was a, a sweet lady that was, you know, uh, Susie and, and she was 65 years old and we, we offered her a package and she was easy to get rid of. But maybe Susie was in charge of the five biggest clients and they, they were actually calling, they called to talk to Susie. They, we may have have absolutely blind and have no idea how important Susie is. And we let her go. And now our top five customers on this, this small company that we bought are like, well, now I can go anywhere I want. Because Susie what was, is what was keeping me there. I've been working her, with her for 15 years. So we just took a business which we haven't seen like that exact story play out. So we all of a sudden went from having this great opportunity for growth to we have an anchor that is sinking both companies while we're paying debt service, and now it's insolvent. So it's a very significant problem, and I, I set out to try and figure it out. And I kind of did. The problem was is that no one ever wanted to hire us in an M&A environment. So we built this tool. <laughs> they were still more in, They were still just more interested in the efficiencies of it, right? They lo- you know, and well, one of the biggest problems is the sellers didn't want us to come anywhere near the, they're like, they had their price, you know, and they may have been building this nice, pretty package with a bow on it for, you know, maybe years. And now some Yahoo wants to come in and be like, hey, can we do this cool thing and talk to your, and they'll be like, hell no, you can't. <laughs> you might jeopardize their valuation. So they don't want us anywhere near the, the deals. And at that time, the tool was very rudimentary and, but, but it showed inkling of working. So just over the years, we've, we've taken that, which was really just a, a qual quant method, like bridge method that allowed us to understand why your customer is doing business with you. And, and then we, the only reason we put a quant to it was because in that in that world, if you don't bring numbers into the table, nobody's going to listen to you anyway. So it was actually pretty fortuitous that we were able to do that. So anyway, fast forward to today, we have really stolen some very smart ideas from Dr. Antonio Damasio, USC neuroscientist, Daniel Kahneman, you know, obviously very famous behavioral economist. And we've taken some of the simple ideas that they have around how the mind works and we have digitized them. So our kind of secret sauce, our superpower is the ability to digitally survey 
people, that's large populations or even individuals, and really truly understand how important emotionally things are to them. And, and here's, here's how it works. So the brain it really is, is far more simplistic when it comes to decision-making than, than maybe we believe ourselves. We, we, we would believe in generality because we play, well, we have this, this yin and this yang with logic and reason and emotions. And we balance those things. It's actually not physiologically true. The, yeah. the emotive brain is in charge. And sometimes, and that's the dumbest part of our brain, which is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it makes the logic brain feel like it's participating, but it's kind of like letting your bro- little brother win. You know what I mean? And it's not. And, and so the input and the output of our decision, and these are, this is, you know, what you want on your cheeseburger and what job you're going to take or what car you're going to buy. The decisions that you would think you would put a lot of, of logic into, you actually really don't. So that that's, so we take advantage of, of that very simple principle. And then we, we mashed a few things into it. Like Daniel, I don't know if you have read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which was a, kind of a tough read, but pretty brilliant. I'm just talking about system one and system two, which is essentially the same thing, the emotive brain and the logic brain. So we said, well, hum, if we know that logic doesn't matter, and if we get logic and we're trying to help, because our job is to help organizations understand their customers in a unique way. What, is, what are the emotional things that you can say to get people to go, ah, that's for me? So logic essentially dirties up that whole data set. So we need to find a way to, to isolate visceral emotion. That was the goal. And essentially, that's what we were able to do using those methodologies. We can measure how fast people make decisions relative to other things. So for instance, we can tell when the logic brain kind of is kicked in and dirties up the data. I mean, they're very simple, very, very simple types of things. And we use two different Likert analyses that are fairly unique. And, and then maybe the big, the biggest one that, that, that is so easy and simple, but very significant is we use abduction. So surveying and polling is essentially an, an inductive methodology, right? Like I would say like polling is the most, is the, the rawest, simplest way to explain the difference. So if you're, if you're being polled by a pollster about who you're going to vote for, for instance, they're going to say, what's your name? And you tell them your name. Who are you going to vote for? Tell them. Do you plan on showing up on Tuesday? And that's that's their date. They may ask you a question or two after that. For the most part, that's it. So what if you're lying? How do they know? That's why all the polling's wrong. I'm going to write an article on that right. too. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, that's timely. So polls are wrong again. Why? It's actually called the Shaitori effect. The reason is because our beliefs are purposely shielded because it is not socially acceptable to say that you so it really reared its ugly head during brexit and people wanted to be like oh well of course we need to help out our fellow men but they really were like i have a lot invested and i am a nationalist and but they don't say that publicly right Mm -hmm. same thing with trump there are people that like trump for various reasons and certainly disliked him for various reasons but socially it was very unpopular to say that you like him because he's not a very appropriate type of person Sure. So there's a vulnerability there that people don't want to expose or express that they keep guarded and provide what the norm is. Okay. So what we would do essentially is we would, instead of like, for instance, we don't get into politics intentionally. I believe that from what we've, we've seen in the tests that we've done, our system would actually work so well that, that I really do think that we could, we could impact the outcome of an election, which is dangerous stuff. We don't go into it, but 
So for instance, we would never even ask anyone who they would vote for, but we could very accurately arrive there. We can also tell you whether or not they even know if they're voting for the right person, which is kind of, by the way, from our side, pretty horrifying. Because I'll tell you from looking at data sets we've done in tests, there are a lot of people that don't actually know which candidate is on which side of certain issues. So there's a general ignorance that should terrify you. Like I saw that and I was like, oh my God. Like when you see the, 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 uh, who supports what, and then they say, and you know, and then they're like, oh my God, they're going to vote for the wrong person. And they don't even know it. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. Which we could go down that rabbit hole. I know Matt was doing a lot of analysis of the Lincoln project and it almost led me to a spinoff called the Springfield project with Homer Simpson on the front. I'll have to tell you later about that, Matt, about educating Americans about the election, but I have a feeling, yeah, Fox would not approve. So, so Grant, as you're talking about this, you're talking about structure and the types of methodology that you would use in, in collection. I, I imagine that probably if you're having to isolate, I always talk about as a content creator and a storyteller, ethos, logos, and pathos being cornerstones of storytelling. So just having you, I'm trying to wrap my brain around how to, from a data collection standpoint, the skill required to even ask the question in a quantitative way. And so can you maybe expand on that just a little bit about what thought process, how you guys approach maybe even structuring question and, and getting to the root to isolate emotion a little bit? Yeah, there's, there is some art to that, to be sure. To, to say that this is, and this is a qual quant approach, because we've, we've done about, we've done about 400 studies at this point and there's no survey university i mean there's no there's no you have to kind of learn very organically how to do certain things so there are certain types of questions that we will only ask a certain way you have mm-hmm. to ask certain questions in certain orders or you're going to bias the audience or you're going to put an idea in their head and then you're biasing the data so there are lots of different tricks and things that you have to that you have to take advantage of. And it's a little bit, when you're, when you're doing something that's quant-based, it's a little bit less important. But when you're trying to discern a feeling or something that's important to someone, you have to be extremely cognizant of what the question is you asked before that. Because, I mean, emotions are everything. They control so much of our, of our being. And even when you're taking, you think like something as simple as taking a survey, you are actually creating emotional highs and emotional lows. You ever seen one of those dial tester things that those guys do? <laughs> that just, that's just from watching a commercial, right? Or an advertisement or something. Same thing. When you're taking a survey, that, that, that happens. And so you have to be very careful around how you do that. Now, I'll tell you the trick, though. One of the things that we, when we're, tr- when we're trying to specifically get to what is important for someone. So you, you guys have heard or seen or, or done creative testing. So you can do creative testing in a myriad of ways. One of the things we do is we have to suck the creative out of it. So here's a little neuroscience trick. The brain will actually toss aside creative language and subjective language in order to identify an objective hook. And it's just simply because the brain operates in a very simplistic way that I always equate to like, like a file cabinet. So if you open a file cabinet, right, it's kind of funny. If you think about it, you could sit at anybody's file cabinet on the planet. Well, unless you didn't understand the language, I guess. And you would really kind of know what's going on, which is kind of strange to think about, right? Like you walk into a random office, you know where you are, and you open a file cabinet, you'll know how to find stuff. And the reason is because of what we write on tabs. That's our navigation. The things that are written on tabs are essentially, they're very simple. They're objective and they're explicit. 
bills, years, dates, people's names. There's no confusion and there's no creative language to create subjectivity. So your brain operates the same way. It's looking for that objective hook. And once it understands that objective hook, they understand what they're talking about in a way that the brain could put some very simple and quantifiable variables behind. Then you can inject emotion. Then you can inject creative language and things like that. So a lot of times what agencies will do is agencies will hire us to come in and look at very complex situations and understand just the, the conceptually what's important to certain customers. And we segment that out. And then they put they layer creative language on top of it. Do that, you write much better copy. You have much better ideas of here are the things we need to touch on because you're getting to the emotions that you know are going to resonate. And, and I know you can always tell when, when a creative doesn't know what's happening or, or really doesn't understand the customer because they use wildly generic creative language, right? Where you read the sentence and you're like, that doesn't even, or, or a tagline or something. And you're like, that doesn't mean anything. And that's because it was just a, it was just a thing that they decided sound sounded good. Does that, does that make sense? No, it makes sense. I think you've articulated the, the reason for a creative brief for just about every organization on the planet. <laughs> Important to do for sure. And I've heard you use the file cabinet analogy before, Grant, that, that's, that's a great one. And yeah, just as you were, as you were talking through that whole process, you know, we're entering the holiday season, right? So I'm a, I'm a notorious impulse buyer. So my little brother rarely wins in the, in the, in the <laughs> so that hit a little too close to home, but that's okay. Shift gears for a second because I'm, I'm fascinated in how people arrive at the moment where they know they've got something, right? They're going to start, a, I don't want to use the word monetize, they're going to start a business around a particular value proposition or orientation. Clearly, that moment happened for you. Do you remember when that was? Do you remember what that, when it was sort of like, wow, this is something that I've got that, that I can build into an agency? I, I'd just be fascinated to kind of hear that. Yeah. Well, you're probably not going to like the answer. Um, it's, the housing market collapsed. <laughs> so I'm working in a business where you have to be able to get sometimes you have to get money. You have to manifest money in order to make a transaction happen. And when that and when the housing market collapsed, the regulations that came down were fine. They didn't really hurt the great big companies. So if you're Pfizer and you want to buy an, you know some other huge company, you're fine. You have the balance sheet to do that stuff anyway. But if you're a small, you know, if you're a if you're a $20 million manufacturing company and you want to buy a $10 million distribution company, you couldn't do it. Like banks were saying that you had to like, you had to, you had to sell fund as the seller 30% of the train. Well, who the hell's going to do that? So it was kind of looking at the writing on the wall and going, well, what the hell am I going to do? Now? I had already decided I wasn't going to go to go into law because I, I, I didn't like it. And, and so I said, well, maybe this has some legs. And, it was, and again, it was fairly rudimentary, but I knew it worked only because we'd, we'd done it enough and I'd, I'd done it backwards enough times. So we so I got into looking at, can we do this for brands, which I didn't know a whole lot about. Can we do this for advertising copy, which I knew absolutely nothing about and, and just kind of did it. And it's not because I thought, boy, this is, I knew I had something that was interesting. I knew it wasn't perfect, but I needed to, you know, I was pr pretty young. I had a new wife. I super duper wanted to stay married. So I was like, I got to make some money. And unfortunately at the time, you know, the M&A was all I knew. I mean, it was just a tough, it was just a tough world at that time. And, and I even applied for jobs and stuff and nobody would hire me. Now looking back, I don't blame them. But the, uh, it was, it was really more out of, you know, you know I've had 
you know, people ask me, well, how did you, how did you, you do it? I'd be like, well, I wanted to stay married and I really wanted to keep my, my small little house and I really love my dog. And so I'd like to keep all of those things in my life. And so I kept showing up every single day. I say, anybody, anybody can be an entrepreneur. They really, they really can. You know, I say, oh, there's a certain, you have to have some kind of genetic predisposition or something. It's more like if you don't like being told what to do, that's the first variable. You have to have that. If you don't like being told what to do, that's the first step. And then you just have to show up every day, show up every single day and work. And even if you don't know what you're working on, just start working. And eventually you can make something work. And that that's kind of what, that's a, not a sexy answer at all. Hey, staying focused. And, and, you know, many times necessity is the mother of invention. So, and, and I, yeah, remembering back to that time, I can, I can see how that would, would be there for you for sure. I, I love it. You, you go back to the, the simple answer, right? A lot of these things emotionally based are, are the, the simple response. And I, I, a lot of my actions are based on wanting to stay married to Grant. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I get it. it. It just goes back to that simple that simple objective, that simple, that simple emotional state, which we're, we're going to touch on another simple emotional state, I think in the next part of this too. And a lot of this show is really a large part of it's about helping marketing professionals grow and learn. And, and you recently did a webinar on fear. And a lot of times, you know, Matt and I'll see, and you even talked about, you know, launching a company or, you know, starting that next career path. Some of the, you know, that fear now in your case, it was the fear of not staying married and losing your dog in your small little house. Right. But in a lot of cases for, for individuals, a lot of those career trajectories, big barrier can be fear. And you, you did this, this webinar that I thought was fascinating early in the year about, about fear. And so I'm interested on you know, your thoughts on why a barrier and then ways to, in the webinar, I think you positioned ways to kind of outsmart fear. And what would you have to offer to our listeners on that? Looking back, that was kind of a clever name, but it's really just, so fear is is the most powerful emotion throughout history has made people do amazing things and awful things. And um, we we see it a lot in our research, actually. And we, we never, I don't want to say never, I, I, I can't recall really a time where we said this needs to be a fear-based position that you, you, you need to use fear-based messaging to do it because you don't, you don't always have to, right? It's sometimes it's easier, but I don't think that any organization should use, should use, you know, fear and negative concepts in order to motivate someone to do something. But your brain is wired in a very dumb, dumb kind of way. So a, a very simple I guess kind of a very simple story to maybe wrap your head around why fear exists in the ways that it does and what you can do about it. It's kind of like, um, so let's go way back in time, right? So thousands of years and we're, we're hunting and gathering, etc. So let's say that we have a, we have a small family or village and we go out and we, we venture out and we venture out to an orchard and we go to this orchard because it's, it's healthy and we pick apples and we bring those apples back to our family and our villagers and history has shown us that these apples have, nobody's gotten sick and we can count on them. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a good decision. So imagine that 
one day we go back and maybe someone else has been picking apples off of this, or maybe it's animals or something, but we see that the quantity of apples that exist in this orchard is diminished. So you immediately become scared. So here's how your dumb, dumb brain works. Even though your brain understands that there is potential loss with this orchard, the moment that you venture out and you decide, I'm going to turn right today instead of go straight to the orchard that we know, we're going to turn right and just see if we can go find another food source. Your brain releases norepinephrine into your body and you start feeling stress and anxiety because your brain does not want you to do something that is different from what it understands to keep you safe. Because your brain, while it can do amazing things, its core value is to keep you alive. It's the way that your eyes process information, the way that, or the way that your, your eye inputs information in your brain, how your brain processes it, it's all survival-based. It's the dumb, dumbiest thing ever. And it is a part of your everyday, and most people don't realize it. And so the point of that webinar was to get people to understand, hey, this happens to you all the time. There is nothing more comfortable to your brain than the status quo. Even when it understands that status quo to some extent is at risk. And uh, you, you can think about things in your own life where you have failed to change. You know, we fear change. We do. We essentially fear change. We don't like it. Your brain likes consistency and your brain likes survival. It's the reason that you get a rush when you jump out of an airplane or, or do something that potentially can put you in harm. And then your brain releases different chemicals that, that gives you highs and that's, you know, people get addicted to those things. But for the most part, that, that's because your, your brain says, well, why on earth would you jump out of an airplane unless you were pushed? That makes no sense. So when it comes to your, your life or your professional life or what you're doing, if it comes to quitting your job to start a business, your brain thinks that's insane. Why on earth would you possibly do that? And it will fight you. It will release negative chemicals into your body. Like it wakes you up in the middle of the night and, and you're sweating and you're stressed out. That's norepinephrine. I mean, that's, that's bad stuff that it's releasing to tell you, don't do this thing. You need to stay alive. And here's the huge irony. I apply this to marketing in a very simplistic way, but, but I think you can relate. So let's say that you're coming up with a tagline or, or you're, trying to, you're trying to position a, a new product or something in the market. Immediately, what you want to do is benchmark that against something else that's out there. And you'll go and you will feel like if, you've really, if you're cognizant and you think about it, and let's say you find another product that's similar, your brain actually finds that to be a relief. Oh, thank God. This isn't so unique that, that it's never been done before right? That actually, if you are excited because it's never been done before, that's actually one of the jumping out of an airplane chemicals that you're releasing like serotonin or uh, one of those two, uh, serotonin or dopamine. And uh, smarter people than me figure that out. But, the, but for the most part, you want it, your brain wants it to be something that it already, that's already out there. That means it's safe. And then you start looking and you look at their copy and you look at the stuff that they're saying and you're like, oh man, okay. And, and actually, if you write that down on yours, your brain finds that very comfortable, even though you're like quick copying essentially, right? So it's funny that when you benchmark an idea or something like that out there, your brain wants it to look and smell like other things that are out there because the perception that your brain has at a, at a base level is that, oh, that's comfortable. 
oh, okay, it's not so crazy that we won't be able to survive and feed ourselves. The irony is that the brain actually buys things that are unique. So it's it's hilarious that internally we create this own marketing dichotomy where I'm your brain saying, for the love of God, don't do anything different. But on the same hand, it's going, hey, if you don't do anything different, no one's going to notice you. So understand that. So part of that, part of that was that webinar was to say, look, understand that your brain wants you to do the same thing as everybody else. It's not going to like you. It's going to release these neurotoxins. It's not going to feel good. But if you don't do something different, no one is going to notice you anyway. So it, it seems riskier, but it's not. It actually will increase your probability of success. Same thing with narrowing your scope too. Your brain doesn't want you to narrow your scope. It wants you to offer new product, new product, new product, new service, new product. Well, every time you do that, you know, you diminish the message, you weaken, you weaken your strategic advantage, and you make less money. You decrease your margin by increasing your scope. So that's another thing. Your brain says, no, no, do more, say more, have the opportunity to accept more checks from people. Yeah, you can appeal to more people. Everybody will want to buy this, right? Do it. Do it. And, and I, you can always tell, like, my, I can predict when businesses are failing just when you drive down the street by the signs that they have. And my wife says, you know, and I'll say, that'll be out of business in six months. That'll be out of business in, in six weeks. And it's I have a pretty decent track record. She's like, how the hell do you do that? Well, there's, there's uh, easy and obvious things you can identify. So let's say that you have a really, this is a rudimentary example, but you see my point. If you see like a burger restaurant, for instance, and they have a sign that says now serving hot dogs, they're gone out of business. Because the, what that means is business was slow enough to where they started going, all right, what do we do? Now, what they probably should have done is created the world's most ridiculous burger, right? And what they should have done is we're a burger place. Therefore, we, sh we should make a burger that has six patties. Now, the point of it isn't for someone to eat those. It's the point that you can now say that and create a unique piece of content. But instead, the safer option is to say, well, why don't we do hot dogs? Maybe people will like hot dogs too. And so let's offer hot dogs. It will increase the scope of our organization and therefore bring in more customers. But that's not true because the, the brain gravitates towards those unique messages and towards specialists. The brain wants a really good cheeseburger, not a half-ass cheeseburger and a half-ass hot dog. I, I, this is such a fascinating topic, Grant. I, you know, it reminds me, I was listening to a gentleman I've heard speak a few times. He's with uh, W2O, which is that agency down in Austin, Texas, and they represent Starbucks. And he was talking about when they first went to work for Starbucks that Howard Schultz had been CEO and then left and came back. And so they were in a meeting and they said, well, you know, Howard, why did you make the choice to come back as CEO? He said, it's because I walked into a, a Starbucks and I smelled eggs. He said, the smell of eggs was just overpowering and it was at that point I knew we'd gotten away from to your your hamburger hot dog and we'd gotten away from what from what our core competency or or whatever you want to call it was. So interesting. Yeah. Kind of a, an interesting, interesting story there. And it's and that's a pure emotion too, which is cool, right? Your the translation of a sensation into emotion. For Matt Tidwell, this is Brent Bowen, and thanks for joining us on this episode of Cultivated Marketer with Grant Gooding from Proof Positioning. Be sure to join us for our next episode where we continue our conversation with Grant to talk career development and what he looks for in new hires, as well as his work in the community. If you found value in today's episode, check us out on our website, cultivatedmarketer.com. You'll also be able to subscribe to us, rate us, and leave us a comment on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. 
Remember, a garden of opportunity grows with Cultivated Marketer.